Good job. Oh, up it goes. There is always that. Whose kid was that? We need to identify them. Amen. Turn your Bibles today to Luke chapter 23. I had a emotionally tough weekend this weekend. We said goodbye to yet uh, another one of our kids as she went off to college. Years ago, I saw a commercial one, uh, one time on television, and it was trying to raise funds, and it said that I could support a child for 50 cents a day. And so we decided to have a child, and I can tell you that estimate is way off. And now it just keeps going as they go on to school. Uh, and uh, can you imagine being interviewed for the job of a parent? Um, what do I get paid? No, no, you pay for 18 years. You pay. And uh, what do I get out of it? Well, the first thing you get is you get uh, um, judged for that question. You can't ask what you get out of it. And then you get loved for 13 years or actually 10 to 13 years. Then you're harshly judged and resented for being alive for the next five to ten years. And then you get loved again, maybe. So that's the job of a parent. But we're grateful. Uh, my daughter just left for Bible college and, have, Lord willing, have another daughter joining today. So we're, we're thankful for what the Lord's done in our life and uh, hopefully yours as well. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 23 today. And um, uh, one day uh, the story goes a Christian and a communist are sitting on a park bench watching the world go by. And as they watched a poor uh, beggar walked and shuffled by them. And the communist pointed to him and said that communism could put a new suit on that man. A Christian uh, responded after a moment's thought, maybe so, but Jesus Christ could put a new man in that suit. And that's what we're after, to change inwardly, not only outwardly. Rabbi Slutskowski was a professor uh, at the seminary in Tel Aviv a number of years ago, and he hated the Lord Jesus Christ, as many Orthodox Jews do. So much so that one time he saw a student reading the Greek New Testament and he sharply criticized him. And so the young man gave the Testament to him. And that night, and alone in his room, this professor was up until 3 a.m. reading about the Nazarene who claimed to be the Messiah. Later he confessed, I have found more than 200 passages in the New Testament that prove beyond a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he came to Christ. The power of the Word of God to shed light on a heart of darkness. There are a lot of incredible conversion stories in the Bible. I think of the Apostle Paul who's on his way to Damascus with a handful of arrest warrants uh, to take Christians and imprison and torture them for their faith in Christ. And then he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of the Philippian jailer who uh, was uh, guarding Paul and Silas, and Paul and Silas didn't mean to go into the prison ministry, but they had one that night, and they sang, and they testified, and they witnessed, and there was an earthquake, the doors were open, and just before the jailer was able to kill himself because he knew what would happen to him, uh, they said, no, no, we're all here, nobody has escaped, and then he rushed over to Paul and Silas, threw himself down at their feet, and asked, what must I do to be saved? I think of that conversion there's conversions during Jesus' earthly ministry as well. I think of the woman at the well who lived an immoral life and, and uh, was not uh, living a, a, a good life at all, but Jesus loves her and she believes on Christ. 
And then I think of that wee little man we sang about in Sunday school. So short, he couldn't see over the crowd, and, and uh, Pastor Nick knows what that's about. Couldn't see past the people, and so had to climb up in a tree just to be able to see Jesus, and Jesus invited him, uh, invited himself to his house, and Zacchaeus was never the same again. We've been talking about the friends of Jesus for the past few months, and today ends that series. This is the last message on that series. And we're going to look today on the last friend that Jesus had on earth. It's the story of a remarkable conversion, and it happened just moments before Jesus died. The scene before us today is the old rugged cross. In fact, there were three crosses, and on e one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Two of them were completely guilty. One was absolutely innocent. Two paid their debt to society. One paid the debt of our sin. And I want to read about that this morning, and we'll talk about it for a few minutes as we look at the friend of Jesus, the thief on the cross. Read with me along uh, on chapter 23 of Luke, verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answer rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I want to preach today for a few minutes on the man in the middle. The man in the middle. Father, I pray you'd help us as we look at this last words of a desperate man and really the last words of a compassionate Savior while they are on earth. I pray that you'd help us to identify as we have always asked to do with each one of these friends. May we see ourselves honestly today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at the cross, we see some paradoxes. One of the cross, uh, there was the cross of rebellion. There was the cross of repentance, and there was the cross of redemption. One died to sin, one died in sin, and one died for sin. One deserved death and got life. One deserved death and got death. One deserved life and accepted death on our behalf. Luke makes a special effort in his gospel to emphasize the truth of salvation. Each gospel has a different purpose in its writing and, and really is meant for different audiences. In Matthew, Jesus is the sovereign. In Mark, he is the servant. In John, he is the son. But in Luke, he is the savior. And consequently, it's only in Luke that we read this exchange between Jesus on the cross and this thief that hung on uh, beside him on his own cross. It's a story of the last-minute reprieve of a dying man, someone that is on the verge of hell, and yet he is promised heaven. Everything about Jesus' death and trial and the, the uh, sham that they put together for that, everything was designed to humiliate him, uh, to try to demean him and take from him any prestige he might have in front of people. And so his enemies crucified him between two thieves for the purpose of that humiliation. They wanted to present him as a common criminal, dying between common criminals, dying with his own kind. But as usual, Jesus turned the evil plans of his enemy 
on its head and he turned it into something good. The presence of these condemned men provided him with an opportunity to once again demonstrate his grace. And that is just what he did. Praise God. Here is Jesus, innocent of all charges. He is arrested on a trumped up charge of, of uh, uh, conspiracy and other things. He has done no wrong. He is absolutely sinless. Many people accept him as the Messiah, but there are still those in religious power who want him dead. Now he's been arrested. He's had a sham trial and they've brought false witnesses to accuse him. And one of the people that Jesus stands before is a man named Pilate. And as you read the Gospels, you see the weakness and indecision of this Roman governor named Pilate. He would go into the crowd and then he would question Jesus and go back to the crowd again, vacillating back and forth, all the while seeking to avoid making a decision. But no man, then or now, can avoid making a decision about Jesus Christ in their own heart. You absolutely must come to a conclusion about who Jesus is and what he is to your life. At some point, you're going to have to reject him or accept him as your Savior. And friend, no decision is a decision all in itself. And Pilate even testified that Jesus was innocent. But he was too big of a coward to let Jesus go. He didn't want to anger the Sanhedrin. And so he had a brilliant idea. There was a local custom for the governor to release a prisoner to the Jewish people at Passover time. And it just so happened that he had a very notable prisoner, a man named Barabbas. And he was a piece of work, this Barabbas was. He was a true villain. Uh, he was a thief, a bandit, he was a murderer, and he was an in insurrectionist. Why not force the people to choose between Barabbas and Jesus to be released to them? After all, just a few days ago, it was that Jesus had come riding into Jerusalem and people were cheering and thronging him and laying down their coats for him to ride over and waving palm branches and cheering for him. Pilate had no doubt about the turnout of this choice. Jesus was very popular and Barabbas was a horrible, horrible criminal, crim, criminal and uh, enemy to society. Uh, Jesus, after all, was the one who healed their sick, cleansed their lepers, uh, fed their multitudes, and even raised their dead. Barabbas, literally the name means son of the father. This was a title more than a name, kind of like uh, the blind man that Jesus healed. We see uh, sometimes titles in scriptures. And uh, many ancient manuscripts give the name of this prisoner as Jesus Barabbas. So the choice is clear. Jesus, who was called Barabbas, he was a murderer, an anarchist, a thief, or Jesus, who is called Christ, he was the Messiah, the Son of David, and the very Son of God. Pilate, again, he had little doubt of how this would turn out. He would present this choice. The people would obviously and correctly choose Jesus. Uh, he would be able to uh, foil the plans of the, of the corrupt priests. He would be able to please the people, and he would let himself off the hook. Barabbas was a rebel, he was a robber, he was a rabble-rouser. Surely, people would choose Jesus. The choice was clear. and uh, But the priests started to go through the crowd and started to do their thing. They persuaded the multitude to choose a guilty man instead of a godly man, to choose a violent man instead of a virtuous man, to choose a robber instead of the redeemer, to choose a godless insurrectionist instead of God incarnate. And I wonder, how did they do it? Have you ever wondered that? 
What are you going to say to convince people to choose someone like Barabbas over somebody like Jesus? What arguments did they use? Maybe they said something along this, these lines. Listen, what Israel needs right now is a Messiah, not like Jesus of Nazareth, but a militant like Barabbas. We need one who will teach us how to fight, not forgive. We need somebody who will stand up to Rome, and Barabbas is that hero. He has demonstrated he's not scared of Rome. We need Barabbas. Hail Barabbas. And the priests worked them up until they took up the chant, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Jesus was not the people's choice that day. And how often, even today, do men ask for the sinner, not the Savior? Because still today, the choice is laid out before us. Will you choose Jesus or will you choose Barabbas? Will you choose the narrow road that leads to life or the broad road that leads to destruction? Will you choose the short-term pleasures of sin or will you choose the eternal rewards of God? Will you choose to serve God or the mammon of this world? What will you choose? Dear friend, only two choices on the shelf, serving God or serving self. And that is the choice you have to make every single day of your life. Now, you may be glad that you didn't have to make a decision like Pontius Pilate had to because he, was found, he, he found himself in quite a quandary there. Uh, but every day... You do have to answer the question, or at some point in your life, you do have to answer the question that Pilate asked in Matthew 7, 22. What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? No man can escape that question. Everyone, at some point, has to answer that question. Now, the Bible's very clear that there's coming a day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But only in this life, before your death, does that account for something in your life. On that fateful day, they chose Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had not been arrested alone. There were two others that presumably were taken in the same scheme with him. All three were set to be crucified for their crimes. Now, Barabbas placed in the middle cross as the premier, the leader of this gang, now would be substituted with an innocent man. They had expected to die with Jesus Barabbas. Now they find someone who bore the same name, Jesus of Nazareth. There can be little doubt they had heard about him. Everybody had heard about Jesus. There were the campfire stories about how Jesus had healed people and, and even rumors that he had raised people from the dead and the miracles that he did in that huge crowd that Jesus fed that one day. And so they would have heard about Jesus. Uh, even in prison, they probably heard about the triumphal entry uh, in Jerusalem just a few days prior to this. But now they find him sharing the same fate that they do, condemned on the same charge that they're charged with, according to Luke 23, 5. Like him, they would be stripped uh, down to their bare back and whipped. Like him, they would bear their cross to the appointed place. Like him, their garments would be parted among the soldiers. Like him, they would be forced to lay down on a horizontal plank of wood. Like him, their arm would be slammed down into place and an actual nail be driven through the wrist of their hand. But unlike him, they deserved it. They were criminals. Unlike him, they cursed the wretched Romans who did this to them. And amidst it all, and surely they can't hear this right, but amidst the screaming and the cursing, they hear this one in the middle who is actually praying for those that are hammering the nails into his hands. 
Then the crosses were dropped into place. This would be an excruciatingly painful thing as they were lifted up and the, and the cross dropped into the a hole that was dug for it. And now they are relegated to just time, to die, uh, waiting it out, suffering like they never imagined possible. Yet the attention is not on them. The attention is all, by the people around them here, the attention is all on the man on the middle cross. Uh, everybody seemed to be making fun of him, mocking the Savior. They're making fun of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Save yourself, they said, like you saved others. Come down from the cross if you're really God. The rulers, the Romans, and the rabble were all poking fun and railing on Jesus, and then the robbers began as well. On each side of Jesus was a malefactor. The word malefactor means evildoer, uh, one who does evil. And Matthew 27, 44 makes it clear that both of them were cursing Jesus and railing on Jesus in the beginning. But as the moments dragged on, one of the thieves' hearts began to change a little bit. In verse 39, we read that uh, in our text, we read that one of them railed, that is to say, speak accusatorily, revile, slander, blaspheme, uh, speak evil of. The original word is blasphemeo, uh, where we get our word blaspheme, and it speak, that's speaking amiss of sacred things. What this man was doing, he was cursing Jesus, not only Jesus himself, but cursing God and cursing the Son of God that Jesus claimed to be. And this uh, sealed his eternal doom. If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. If thou be the Christ, he said, trying to use Christ to his own ends, save thyself and us. The world is still doing that today. The world still has that attitude uh, of if when talking about Jesus. If you are who you say you are, do this for me. Can I tell you today, you simply cannot do that. You can never attach an if to Jesus Christ, if he said, he, uh, if you be Christ. Because relegating him to something else other than the Son of God, the Messiah, is absolutely impossible. And many people do it. Many people call him a prophet. Many people call him a good man, uh, a teacher. But Jesus cannot be any of those things. Because of the claims that Jesus made, uh, if he is not who he said he was, he is at best a fraud and at worst insane. You cannot make the claims that Jesus made and just be a good man. So there were these two thieves. One man is dying in his sin. One is dying to his sin. And he recognizes that the man in the middle is dying for his sin. He has come to his senses after initially cursing out Christ. He recognized the deity of Christ. One uh, who is there on that cross on a horrible, excruciating, in, a, in horrible, excruciating pain, but he's uncomplaining, and all the while he's freely forgiving those who are doing it to him. Who could he be but God himself? He asked a great question of his compadre in crime. He said, Dost thou not, dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art also in the same condemnation? Even in this point, buddy, he says, when death is imminent, we're going to die at any time. You still don't fear God? In the midst of all this carnage and bloodshed, no one gets it. All the mocking and the jeering, 
No one gets the monumental significance of what is happening in this moment. Jesus Christ dying for the sins of the world as our perfect lamb sacrifice that all the Old Testament has spoken of. And all the, the, uh, the Old Testament saints as they would sacrifice lambs in picture of this moment right here when Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, would be sacrificed for us. No one gets it. No one that is except the thief, the other thief. It's astounding to me that this one man that seemed, uh, is, is able to see through the tragedy to the truth. The Pharisees were there representing ecclesiasticism. They didn't get it. The Sadducees were there representing privilege. They didn't get it. Pilate was there representing opportunism. He didn't get it. Herod was there representing secularism. He didn't get it. The crowds were there representing acquiescence. They didn't get it. The soldiers were there representing military might. They didn't get it. Judas is already dead. We talked about him last week representing nationalism. He, did, he hadn't gotten it. The only one that got it was a thief hanging beside Jesus on the cross. He says in verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. He said, hey, buddy, listen, we deserve what we are getting. And can I tell you that the first step in getting saved is understanding that we are undeserving of that very thing. It is the fallacy of prosperity preachers of this day to believe that God owes us something. God doesn't owe us anything but death and hell and condemnation. That's all He owes us because of our sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing we earn. That's what we deserve. We were cursed by a law that we could not keep. But in Galatians 3.13, the Bible says, He was made that curse for us. The wrath of God, listen, this is so good. The wrath of God that should have been poured down on me and on you, God instead poured down on His Son in our place. He took your punishment. He took your wrath. The thief got it. He understood it. He said this man had done nothing amiss. How does he know this? How does he know this? I mean, presumably, he was not in the circles of the disciples. It doesn't, there's no sign he was there when the leper was healed. He wasn't there when the 5,000 got fed. He wasn't there when the, they tore a hole in the roof, that uh, quartet that raised the roof and let the young man through and, and had uh, him healed. He wasn't there for that day. He wasn't there when Lazarus stumbled out of the tomb. How did he know about Jesus? All he had was just to look. But there was something different about the man in the middle cross. There was something that he recognized about Jesus. He did not curse the soldiers who drove the nails. He prayed for their forgiveness of sins. And this is what the thief did. He did what we're told to do in Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. All this man had was a look. But it was enough for him to see that this was the Christ. Oh, dear friend, I ask you today, in the midst of your troubles and your trials and your heartaches, look to Him. Jesus is all we need. In fact, He's all we need from A to Z. He is the Almighty. He is the bread of life. 
He is the Christ. He is the Deliverer, the Eternal One. He's the first and the last. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the Holy One of God. He is the I Am. He is the Judge. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. He's the name above all names. He is the Omega, the Prince of Peace, the Quieter of Storms, the Resurrection and the Life. He is the Savior, the Truth, the Unblemished Lamb of God. He's the Victor over the Grave. He is the Way and the Word. He's the expected Messiah of the Old Testament and the exalted King of the New Testament. He is yesterday, today, and forever. He is Zion's holy King. He is all we need, but we better take a look. We better look on Him. Look on Him instead of looking on the things of the world. Look on Him instead of uh, focusing on things that are temporary. All this, somehow, the thief got it. He understood this on some level. Then he spoke to Jesus again. His grasp of truth is amazing. He says, Lord, verse 42, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, it's too serious of a moment to chuckle, but I think about this. Did Jesus look like he was about to receive a kingdom? I mean, beaten to a bloody pulp, uh, naked and exposed, Mocked and derided, dying a criminal's death, nothing seemed more unlikely than this man on this middle cross about to accept his own kingdom. The only crown the world had for him was a crown of thorns that they bashed onto his head. The only tribute that the world gave him was a mocking title uh, nailed to the top of his cross, the most hideous tool of torment ever devised by fallen man. And yet this thief had faith rising up in his soul. He knew that all, with all of his heart that on the other side of death, and I really believe that people have an, an inner knowledge of this already, that on the other side of death, it does not end. There is eternal life to be gained. There is a glorious kingdom of God. He knew he did not deserve to go there. No, no. But here, this man, Jesus, was the king of that place. So with great faith, and with great daring, he says those words, Lord, putting him on the throne of the universe. Remember me, putting him on the throne of his heart. When thou comest into thy kingdom, putting him on the throne of David. And I find it interesting and fascinating and exciting that the response was immediate. And dear friend, it always is. When we call on Christ, he answers. And any soul that has ever asked Christ for redemption and forgiveness, He always grants it. And immediately He answers, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Verily, surely, of a truth. You can take that to the bank, is what verily means. What a thought that Jesus in the heat of His suffering, with all that is happening to Him and the unfairness of it all, He is still working at bringing people to heaven with Him. What keeps you from that? A lot of times it doesn't take much trouble to get our focus off of our primary mission, which is the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, we're always to try to be a witness to others for the cause of Christ. What keeps you from doing what you're supposed to be doing? Now, we've ended all the messages on these various friends with what they did afterwards. These obscure, unlikely men and women that Jesus used greatly. And this story ends a little differently because obviously the thief did not live to do anything for Christ. 
We talked last week about Judas. Of course, Judas also uh, did not do anything for Christ after because he committed suicide. His opportunity, uh, uh, he had all the opportunity in the world and he squandered it. In the end, he kissed the door of heaven and went straight to hell. The thief is just the opposite. His opportunity came at the very end, but praise the Lord, he took it. But what a tragedy that he lived a life of crime and died uh, the death of a criminal. He never got to do great things for God. His life was a life squandered. He never got baptized. He never uh, went through discipleship program. He never became a church member. He never won a soul to Christ. He never gave a nickel to the offering plate. But he's in heaven today. Can I tell you, friend, that he is not there because of what he did. He is not there because he did anything to earn it. He could not, and you cannot either. He's there because of that man in the middle cross who took him and paid his price for him. I love the way that Alistair Begg lays out the scene of this thief when he got to heaven. And it's just a little bit of a mind exercise, but as uh, after the thief, you know, just a few minutes after that, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the thieves so that they could no longer lift themselves up and breathe, and he died of asphyxiation. And so he ends up in heaven, and the angel says, Hey, what are you doing here? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Well, what, what in the world? I mean, the last person you expect to see is this thief. I guess I have to go get my supervisor. They go get his supervisor. They bring him over. Uh, what are you doing here? I don't know. Well, let me, let me ask you. Uh, break down your view of the doctrine of justification of faith. Or what do you understand about uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation? The thief, I have no idea what you're talking about. Then pray tell man, why are you here? On what basis are you here? And he says, all I know is that the man in the middle cross told me I could come. And dear friend, if you get to heaven, it will not be on the basis of what you've done. It will not be on the basis of any of your works or any of the things that you've stacked up on your path because salvation is not a gift uh, to the, uh, a reward to the righteous. It is a gift to the guilty. It will not be because of your deeds. It will not be because of your life. It'll be because of the man in the middle. Thank God for the man in the middle cross. I'm glad he wants to be a friend to all who will come to him. The Bible says he will in no wise cast you out. I hope that you've accepted Him as your Savior today. And I'm thankful that in despite on this day, with all the people that were there, you had all kinds of philosophical uh, brainiacs, and, and uh, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and you had soldiers and high-up military men. All these people are there, and none of them got what Jesus was doing except a lowly thief. And Jesus saved a malefactor, and I'm glad He did, because I'm a malefactor, and so are you. And you know what he's in the business of? He's still in the business of saving malefactors, evildoers. He'll forgive you today. J.C. Ryle said, if ever there was a soul hovering on the brink of hell, it was the soul of this thief. Some would have thought him too wicked a man to be saved, but it was not so. And I ask you today, friend, what about you? Have you accepted the sacrifice of the man on the middle cross? Or have you rejected it? He did this on your behalf. The thief on the cross demonstrates a wonderful fact that it is never too late to ask Christ to save you. Secondly, he also demonstrates the fact that nothing you've done 
takes you outside of being a candidate for salvation because anyone and everyone can come to Christ and He'll receive you gladly. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Oh, praise God for the picture of salvation and grace that we see with the thief on the cross. Because I'm a thief and you're a thief. None of us are any better than he was, but he saw it and he recognized, I am here getting this punishment because it's what I deserve and I don't deserve anything beyond this. I don't deserve heaven after this. But here's a man who's dying and he's innocent and I'll just ask him, hey, if you can do anything for me, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He can say the same thing to you today. You can be forgiven and you can go forward with Him as your Savior. I hope that you have made that decision and if not, I hope you don't leave today without making it. But He also proves the thief on the cross how tragic it is to live a life absent of the Savior. Because at the end, that's what the world has to offer us. Just a cross, destruction, Satan, the Bible says, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't love you. He wants to destroy you. And so we have these two paths in front of us. The thief took the wrong path in the very beginning of his life, and he chose a life of crime, and the cross is where he ended up. Thankfully, God intercepted him before it was too late. The other thief had the same opportunity that the, first, uh, the second thief had. He had the same opportunity. He could have called on Christ and went to heaven with him too, but he didn't. He chose to be angry and bitter, and he chose to curse the very one who could have saved him. And today, uh, like I said, we're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are guilty. So really, all of us are thieves. All of us are sinners. But I ask you today, which one are you? You're one of those two. You're either on the left side of Jesus and you want nothing to do with Him. I don't believe what He has. I don't believe what the Bible says. I don't believe in God. Whatever it is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or you can be the thief on the right side who recognized what Jesus was doing on His behalf. And He accepted that payment of sin on His account. And He's in heaven today while the other thief is in hell. The choice is just as clear for us today as it was for them. The friend of Jesus, the can teach us so much. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't want anybody looking around because I want to ask you a question this morning. Many of you I don't know that well. Some of you I know somewhat and some of you I know well. But I, I, I want to ask you a question as you search your own heart today. No one's looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. I just want to pray for you. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I'm not sure if I'd be in heaven if something happened to me today. I'm not sure. I hope I would be. I even think I might be, but I'm not sure. I'm talking 100%. I'm not sure if I'd be in heaven today. Would you just slip up your hand and let me pray for you? Just let me, let me pray for you. Just slip up your hand. Let me pray for you. I'm not sure I'd be in heaven today. What about you, dear Christian? Have you wasted your life? What should be spent on the Savior who's done so much for you? Oh, I ask you today, give it all to Christ before it's too late. Would you stand along with me? She begins to play. Uh, the altar is open. If God spoke to your heart, would you respond this morning?